Hi, everyone. Welcome to Food Talk. Producer Stephen Ray Morris here to introduce today's episode where Danny had the pleasure of participating in a forum organized by Clover Sonoma to bring farmers, entrepreneurs, scientists, business leaders, and consumer advocates together to discuss both traditional and alternative dairy products. They talked about the rise in recent plant-based foods and how milk of all kinds can impact health and nutrition, the environment, animal welfare, farming communities, and more. They also talked about how two seemingly opposite industries, cow-produced dairy and plant-based dairy, can join together for a productive conversation, better nutrition, and healthier consumers. Please enjoy the show. Good morning, everyone. Again, my name is Danny Nirenberg. Uh, I work for this organization called Food Tank, and our, our mission is to really highlight stories of hope and success in the food system and, and, and show what's working on the ground. And um, that's why I think, you know, having these discussions around what is an environmentally, socially, and economically sustainable food system is so important because we have this opportunity to have really blunt and honest conversations with experts who are working on these issues every day. Uh, I want to congratulate uh, Clover Sonoma for their leadership on, on these issues around um, transparency and sustainability in general. I also want to thank the team at Double Forte who brought you all together and have uh, assembled this amazing group of experts. Um, again, our goal this morning is to have really honest dialogue. So I'm encouraging the uh, panelists to interrupt one another politely, no fist fights. <laughs> Take that outside, okay? And, and you know, build on, on what one another sa says, disagree, obviously, but, but have a lot of fun with it. And I hope we'll have a lot of fun with the, the Q&A as well. Um, so our, our goal, again, is, is to talk about the nutritional and environmental impacts of, of dairy and also uh, whether plant-based alternatives play a role in, in a food system that needs to meet the needs of a lot of different kinds of eaters, both today, tomorrow, and well beyond. So um, let me briefly set some of the stage for you. Um, the, the U.S. is producing more milk than ever before. According to the USDA, U U.S. milk production has increased 13% since 2008, but Americans are consuming fewer dairy products, especially liquid milk. In 1977, Americans consumed an average of 238 pounds of dairy products annually. Today, that number is around 148 pounds per person, a 91-pound decrease. Uh, dairy farmers are also facing unprecedented challenges since 1970, the number of dairy farmers in the U.S. has dropped dramatically from around 640,000 to around 37,000. According to the National Farmers Union, around 70% of what consumers pay for milk at the grocery store doesn't actually go to the farmer because of unfair pricing practices. So a gallon of milk that retails for about uh, $4.49 means that a, a farmer gets only about $1.39 of that. So... Um, you know, it, we're, we're experiencing a time where dairy farmers are not only competing against one another, but they're also, uh, you know, seeing this rise in plant-based alternatives to milk. The availability of pea, uh, soy, oat, and other kinds of milk is growing. Alternative sales have grown by 61% since 2012. And the plant-based beverage industry is expected to grow from 11 billion in 2018 to 20 billion by 2023. 
Um, and consumers are choosing this, these products for a variety of reasons. Some are, are concerned about personal health or the climate crisis or animal welfare. And, and there's controversy over what these products can actually be called. Can they be called milk, cheese, and yogurt, or do they need different names? So obviously, there's a lot to talk about, which is why I'm glad these experts are here, because they have all the answers, I promise. Um, so I'm just going to introduce them briefly. You, you see in your programs their names and titles. You can look them up easily online. I just want to get to the, the, the meat of this discussion, or the milk. Um, first, I'm excited to introduce Marcus Benedetti, Clover Sonoma's chair and CEO. Next is Doug Beretta, a third generation or a third generation family farmer who has been raising cows on pasture organically since 2012. I'm also pleased to have Julie Emmett, the senior director of retail partnerships for the Plant-Based Foods Association. Next, we have Rachel Shear from UC Davis, who is the director for the Center for Nutrition in Schools. I'm also excited that we have Dr. Lynn Huntsinger, a professor at Cal Berkeley's Department of Environmental Science. Next, we have Dr. Frank Mintliner the UC, uh, from the UC Davis Department of Animal Science. I'm also pleased that Jenny Lester Moffitt from the California State Board of Food and Agriculture is here. And last but not least, we have Stephen Williamson, the founder and CEO of the Forager Project. Please give them all a round of applause. Okay, so here we go. Buckle up. Um, <laughs> so Lynn and Frank, I, I, I want to talk to you both first. The, there's been a lot of talk about the environmental impacts of dairy and livestock production, and I think people are confused. So uh, I, I want to get into the positive benefits first. And so Lynn, I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk about what, what dairy grazing can do for the environment. Okay, well, I am... Uh, I'm going to expand that to grazing in general, both sure. for meat and for dairy, because um, I study grazing on the um, semi-natural lands of the states, the grasslands and oak woodlands, not so much in pastures and farms. Uh, there's a lot of grazing going on in California, a very great deal. And there was once this TV show called All Creatures Great and Small. All creatures great and small are grazing on California lands right now as we speak. Since I study vegetation management and vegetation ecology um, and livestock do a certain proportion of that grazing, uh, I wind up studying how to manage and use livestock as a tool for managing vegetation in California. And my central point, I guess, today is that California needs livestock grazing for a variety of purposes. For one thing, Cal livestock in California remove approximately, this is a back of the envelope uh, calculation that a student of mine did, about 9 million tons of biomass, mostly dried annual grasses, or annual grasses also not dried, but would also actually wind up as dried annual grasses if they weren't consumed by livestock, about 9 million uh, tons of that a year. And that is stuff that starts fires. Mm -hmm. It's also stuff that chokes out habitat for native species and for uh, um, for native vegetation. So, for example, I, I went to a talk this year in my department. We were hiring some uh, biologists, and one of them was an aquatic biologist, and he showed pictures of a healthy coral reef. And there are these beautiful fish swimming around the healthy coral. Many of them are herbivorous. They swim around eating and gnawing on uh, algae all day, I guess, in these coral reefs. And then the next picture he showed what happens if you take those fish away. 
And the whole thing becomes overwhelmed by algae. And I, I looked at that and I thought, oh my God, California is kind of in that state. Mm -hmm. We have this tremendous growth of vegetation. And a lot of that is related to the fact that our vegetation is not, it's a mix of vegetation that's been here and evolved here uh, with our wildlife, a uh, tremendous variety of wildlife with our native species. And a, a, a mix of that and plants from all over the world that have a similar uh, climate to us. We have an unusual climate. A lot of what people will say about grazing uh, in the United States has nothing to do with California. That's one thing to remember. But we have this situation where plants grow in the winter, not the summer. And so in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, when people came here from Europe, they brought a whole package of ecological components, including livestock and plants that had evolved together in, or adapted together mm -hmm. in the Fertile Crescent for thousands of years. And those plants are really happy here in California. Uh, and the best tool we have for managing them at this point, uncovering wildlife habitat that didn't used to be covered by, I mean, we have places around here that can produce 11,000 pounds an acre of these non-native grasses. So we use grazing to open that up to make habitat better and to reduce fire hazard. All those things are possible. So That's it's great. a land use that I wouldn't want to lose. That's incredible. Thank you so much sure. for that really clear explanation. So you, you talked about sort of, you know, the biodiver biodiversity effects and the impacts on wildfires. Frank, I, I want to turn to you and, and talk about, you know, in New York this week, the UN uh, climate meetings are going on and you've looked at a lot of the carbon hoofprint, if you will, of, of, of cows and, and livestock in general. Can you talk about why, you know, sort of give us this general overview of how livestock contribute to climate change? Well, that's a very broad question. You have 30 <laughs> seconds. So, um, I, I want to limit it to, to ruminant livestock, okay? Sure. So, and to further what my colleague just said, um, one of the things that is really so special about ruminant livestock is that they can make use of a resource nobody else can. And that's cellulose. That's the, the most abundant Absolutely. biomass on earth today that monogastric animals and humans cannot digest. Ruminant livestock can because they have the microbial composition in the rumen to break down cellulose, make it into animal source foods. Um, so, and the process is of course supported by photosynthesis, right? So you have CO2 in the air, the plants suck out that CO2, that carbon, they produce carbohydrates, the animals digest it, and they produce animal source foods so they're as very a result. efficient. Yes, well, they are. And, um, and a byproduct of that process is, is methane generation, okay? And that's what everybody's talking about right now. But I want to bring uh, to the table here, well, there's no table, but to the attention <laughs> of the room, that if you think of all agricultural land used in the United States and globally, of all the agricultural land used in the world and and here in this country, 70% is marginal land, seven zero. Marginal land means this land cannot be used to grow crops. 30% are arable land and they can be used to grow crops, but 70% are marginal land. And guess how we use that marginal land globally and in this country? We use it with ruminant livestock. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. These animals are able to not just recycle co-products, let's say almond hulls and cotton seeds and all the stuff that comes as co-products of agricultural crop production, but they're able to upcycle cellulose-containing feedstuff nobody else can. 
So without these ruminants, we would not make use sure. of a vast resource in this well, country. Well, you've talked a lot about marginal lands and how important livestock are for for those those areas. Can you describe to me the difference in in um, the effect on climate change from pasture-raised systems versus confined systems? So this is um, also a a tricky one. So. For example, on the, on the beef side, <laughs> on the beef side, on the beef side, a beef animal um, can go. Well, they all start out on pasture, all regardless of how they're finished, whether they're grass finished or corn finished. They all live at least two thirds of their lives on pasture, and then the corn finished animals they will go into a feedlot for four, five, maybe six months. They finish when they are fourteen to sixteen months of age. Their grass-finished peers live 26 to maybe 30 months of age. So they live longer and the grass-finished peers eat more roughage. And the roughage is actually um, what generates mm -hmm. methane because the methane-forming microbes need roughage. So on the one hand, grass-finished animals will produce more methane through enteric process. That's a downside. But an upside is that rangeland sequesters carbon. It sucks up carbon and stores it in the ground. We don't yet know exactly how much, but we know it's vast. Mm -hmm. When you look at EPA and IPCC statistics for the United States and globally, you will find that ruminant livestock, well, that agriculture, sorry, agriculture and forestry in this country and internationally, sequester more carbon than they emit. Think about this. Agriculture and forestry are the only sectors in the world that put away more carbon than they release. Can you go Get tell the, the UN that? <laughs> Can you go tell the United Nations that this week? <laughs> they know, they know. The recent IPCC report mentioned it, but the media reporting on it didn't mention it at sure, all. Sure, sure. And you've got to wonder why. Get on because your Twitter, Frank. Sorry? Get on your Twitter account. Yeah, so, get on my <laughs> so no, thanks. That's a very clear explanation, and I think it gives people a sense of of, of what we're dealing with. So, Jenny, I, I want to turn to you, and you know, you um, have said that there's really no silver bullet in dairy farming for for solving these problems around climate and and the other challenges that dairy farmers and all of us as eaters face. Um, and you you said to me that regula regulation isn't keeping up. Why is that? Well, I guess when I when I talk about the silver bullet, what I'm talking about is is the solution. And so, um, I, I do not come from a dairy farming family, but my family does farm walnuts, and we farm in California for five generations. And there is in how we manage our systems, whether it is walnut farming systems or dairy farming systems, it will really depend on our own management practices, where we are, um, what our needs are. And so that's where there's no silver bullet um, in in really how we're managing it and what are the solutions mm -hmm. and what are the right solutions. Um, the question about regulations. Um, in 2016, there was there was landmark legislation that was passed, SB 1383, which I'm seeing a lot of nods in the head. A lot of you guys are very familiar with, and that is legislation that um, that acknowledges that there are. Um, super pollutants out there, short-lived climate pollutants that are very powerful. They live shortly in the climate. Uh, methane is one of those. And so part of the, the goal of the bill was to reduce methane overall in the state by 40% below 2013 levels by 2030. Uh, dairy and livestock is about half of that. Mm. Um, and so that's where we play a big role in that. So there's, of course, landfill methane and other things that we 
certainly play a role as we talk about food waste and we talk about upcycling for sure. Um, but it also is just really about the dairy and livestock and, um, and a lot of the work that we're doing right now is really on manure management um, and partnering with farmers and ranchers throughout the state on managing manure, managing our systems. What, what does to, that look like? What does managing manure look like? Yeah. So, um, what does it smell like? <laughs> <laughs> um, so a lot of uh, so and again no silver bullets so we have two separate programs incentive programs that we're working with one is um, dairy digesters mm -hmm. and so that is really taking existing dairy manure lagoon systems tarping those capturing the methane that is coming off of that and putting it into either a generator to create renewable electricity or putting it into the pipeline for the natural gas that we purchase in mm -hmm. our homes or um, and the biggest use that really the dairy operations especially along the 99 and the i5 corridor down in the valley are looking into is um, is creating renewable transportation fuel so as we're shifting our um, transportation sector to low carbon intensity fuels there's a great opportunity opportunity to take the methane that is coming from the manure that's generated from dairies and turn that methane into renewable transportation mm -hmm. fuel. So it just goes circular in everything that we're talking about and the opportunity for agriculture to be um, part of the solution and at the table through those conversations. But we also fund a lot of projects, actually over half of the projects we just funded with the $102 million we just announced last Congratulations. week. Congratulations. Thanks. Um, so 50, 50 of those projects are actually funded what we call alternative manure management strategies and that's like everything but the digester is what I call it um, and that is things like solid separation turning that manure into compost that can then be used on the pasture for healthy soils we talk about carbon generation really growing those natural grasses sure. so those are some of the things that also we're looking at with in partnership with dairies how receptive have farmers been to those opportunities or the, to, to manage manure in different ways those alternative strategies incredibly receptive so when we first started having having the conversation actually when the legislation first passed, the dairy operations were really nervous about what this meant. Um, but we've seen an incredible uptick in applications in right. growers and dairy operations really interested in applying for the funding. I don't know the numbers offhand for this current round, but basically we've had um, over a 200% application rate. So twice wow. as many dollar requests for the dollars that we have available. So there is tremendous interest collectively so far with what we funded. Our goal again is 40% reduction. Our funding in this last round brings us to 25%. So we're over halfway to where we needed wow. to be by 2030 already. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, so Doug, I, I want I to switch to you now. So you've heard a policy expert talk. You've heard two scientists talk. You're the farmer. And, and so I, I'm interested in hearing, you know, more about what you do on your farm. When we spoke a few weeks ago, you talked about how farmers are not good at telling their stories and, and especially dairy farmers aren't good at telling their stories so that consumers really understand what they do. And so what do you want to know? What do you want folks to know about sort of the science of your day to day life on the farm? Well, I think the, the biggest thing is listening to this and I want to let you know that I am one of the 50 that just got a, an AMP grant. Congratulations. So um, I will be starting that project next year. Um, it's a $609,000 grant to, to do almost exactly what you said. Um, in the North Bay, one of the things that 
we have to really remember is the the manure management and things like that has been so far ahead of the rest of the state of mm-hmm. California. Going back clear into the early 80s, farmers up there, when Department of Fish and Game could not sample watersheds, we all stepped up and said, here's money. We'll go sample with a third-party monitor to make sure manure wasn't getting into the creek. So manure management has been a huge thing in the, in the North Bay for, you know, like I said, 30-some sure. years. Um, the day-to-day is... For us, we've been pasture-based since 1948. My grandfather was even before we went organic in, in 2006. And it's just been, it's, it's one of those things that we've always knew that you raised enough animals to pasture the ground and, but not create a problem with the manure. Mm-hmm. So we were able, my grandfather built first manure pits back in 1968 before the Clean Water Act because he knew that, that manure could be used as a fertilizer to grow more grass, to mm-hmm. feed more cows. So, you know, the day-to-day is just trying to make sure that we're doing the right thing, telling our story. I think we're afraid sometimes to really tell the story, what we're doing, because pictures tend to hit the internet and people don't understand the story behind mm-hmm. it. So a calf hutch, everybody says, well, why do you raise your calves in these little, these little pens? Well, if you think about any of you that have had children, the baby goes in a crib until it is ready to be really intermingled with other older children. And that's the same thing we do with the calf hutch. Mm. It's there for its safety. We're feeding it. We're taking care of it. And at about three to four months old, when we feel comfortable that it can be intermingled and we don't end up with the injuries, that's why we do that. But if that picture hits the, the internet and there might be a little bit of manure there and it looks dirty, our, our views of the dairy industry just get to be really... So you, you, you shut down rather shut down. than sharing exactly. your experiences. So, so Marcus, I guess my question for you, we also talked about this, this lack of narrative around what dairy farmers do every day. And how does a company like Clover Sonoma help farmers like Doug and, and Sharon, his wife, tell their story better? So I just, I just want to start. I, I commend my plant-based friends. Um, I think this is courageous, frankly, of all of us to to have this dialogue. And I don't view dairy and plant as a zero-sum game. Uh, I think that uh, it's a testament to everyone that let's produce as best we can the facts in an honest way to where consumers can choose plant or dairy. I mean, that is really my only interest in, in this forum, is to get as much information across as we can to consumers, and they can make their own decision, whether it's plant or whether it's dairy or anything in between. Just wanted to say that, number one. On the dairy side, though, I think we have an amazing, compelling case um, to be made, starting just with the raw nutritional component of what exists in an eight-ounce glass of milk. That it's the original superfood. It cannot be replicated by anything on earth without adding a ton of stuff, taking a bunch of stuff out, processing a bunch of stuff into it, or all three of those activities at once. So if you think about what has withstood the test of time throughout human history, when we first started domesticating animals, we've ra- raised countless generations on the original superfood, and that is milk. Now, not all, all milk is created equal, and we have changing times, and we need to stay ahead of that. So our obligation, as I see it at Clover, is to find the most dynamic partners that we can, team up with them, get ahead of the curb, engage consumers for what it is, the good, the bad, the ugly. This is what we do. This is how we do it. But we have to always elevate it, whether it's with animal welfare, whether it's with raw quality, whether it's with environmental stewardship. We have to holistically look at how 
the land is being treated, how the farm families are being economically treated, how the central caste in that whole equation, the cow is being treated in that process, and is it sustainable for another generation? When you go to Point Reyes National Seashore and you look at McClure Beach and Kehoe Beach, there are five generations of organic dairying up there, and I know they want to go to their six. So as a brand, I feel it's our obligation to tell that story as best we can to the consumers. It's not going to be the cheapest milk out there because of the things that these folks do. But if you're willing to listen to that story, I know every day of the week and twice on Sunday, consumers will pay an extra dime knowing that that social compact is embedded and they have a real say in terms of their social values by virtue of what mm. they purchase in their food system. And do you feel that the sort of criticism that there's a misperception of what dairy farmers do that, that Doug sometimes feels? Do you feel like that consumers don't really understand? I do. And, and, and Doug said it best, you know, they're, they're afraid to engage and they need, you know, partners, frankly, that can with confidence lay out the truthful narrative, knowing that it's not perfect and knowing that it's not going to appeal to every consumer. But at least there's a benchmark based in fact. And really, that's our interest is, you know, how does this work? Mm -hmm. And by the way, how do we connect urban consumers back to the to the farm? Absolutely. I mean, that is what I see as the biggest disconnect in our food system yeah. right now. Milk doesn't emanate from a package. <laughs> and what kind of, I'm interested in, I don't know how much you know about this, um, but what kind of questions on your website or do people call into the company wanting to know about how the milk is produced? Or, or Do people get it? Do people know that milk comes from cows and that they're on pasture and that you're doing it differently than other than other companies? Well, it's fascinating. It depends on who you talk to. My favorite job is going down to an urban supermarket and talking to consumers right as they, they come up to the dairy case or the plant-based case. You know, what are your thoughts on dairy? What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? What are you aware of? What are you not aware of? I I mean, I think so much of that, that truthful kind of interactive, meaningful dialogue, frankly, is filtered out with all of the formal channels by which you get it. You've got to interface with people. Mm -hmm. They're not going to tell you what's in their heart unless they are looking at you, right. they trust you. Um, they're not going to open up. They'll maybe give you a piece of what they're, they're yeah. thinking of, but you got to mix it up with people. So. Absolutely. So, so Rachel, you, you deal a lot with consumers or like consumer perception. So... Do you think consumers are, are confused? I mean, Marcus called milk the superfood. Do, do you, is that what the public thinks milk is? That's, that's a big question to answer. Yes. 30 seconds, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Is that a good enough answer? Yeah, I think, I think consumers are confused. Um, I think there's way more misinformation that exists than correct information. Every day of my job is trying to dispel a little bit of those myths. Um, do I think that most consumers would call milk a superfood? I don't know. Um, I deal with sort of the loudest voices, um, not necessarily the most voices, if that makes sense. And so I've, I get probably monthly questions about, well, dairy is not really safe for me, right? And mm -hmm. I have to spend a lot of time dispelling that myth. So I think, I don't know if that's the consensus, but that's the loud voices say things that I don't think are necessarily true. And so I, I want to get into some of the, the differences that you see as a nutritionist between 
plant-based milks versus dairy milk. And, and Marcus alluded to some of that, but can you just give us sort of a brief rundown of, you know, and I know you don't know about every single milk, almond versus, you know, regular milk, but just give yeah. it maybe a, a, a brief overview of, of what is what. Sure. And I, I brought a cheat sheet because there's a lot of information to remember sure. which has what in it. So um, generally speaking, if we just take a glass of, let's say, 2% milk, um, there's going to be about 8 grams of protein in it. I think protein is sort of the first place that we start. Um, it tends to be the highest. I, as far as I can tell, with as much internet digging as I could possibly do and setting a, a group of students on the task as well, um, nothing comes at quite as close to um, milk in terms of protein. And it's also high quality protein, meaning that it has all the amino acids you need in the right amounts that you need them. Um, that said, there are other milk products that contain almost as much. Something like soy milk will have like seven grams of protein in a glass. And it also is a fairly complete protein. So when we're just talking about protein, they're somewhat comparable. Calcium is a different story, right? The calcium in milk, calcium you need for your bones, it's very important. Uh, the calcium in milk is very bioavailable, meaning that your body can use it very readily. Um, the calcium that is added to the other milk products, some of it is more bioavailable than others. So sometimes you'll see something like, I can't think of one off, Ripple is a pea milk, right? I'm pretty sure on their website this morning, I noticed that it said it has more milk, or excuse me, more calcium than a glass of milk. That may be true, but is it as bioavailable? Meaning, can you actually use that calcium? I don't know the answer to that question. I'm, I'm, you know, that could be something for discussion. So it's kind of a hard thing to parse out nutrient by nutrient, which is the best. I can't tell you that. Sure. Are you allergic to milk? You shouldn't drink milk then. That's a bad idea. <laughs> you know, um, are you allergic to almonds? You probably shouldn't drink almond milk. So there's a lot of considerations when it comes to the consumer making that choice. And when consumers come to me and ask, well, what should I be drinking? Or I'm not going to drink dairy. And I say, well, tell me why. Is there a particular reason? Or I only drink fill in the blank milk. Well, why is there a particular mm. reason? So I think that understanding sort of why the consumer is making the decision is a really important factor when considering sort of nutrition and other factors, right? So when the consumers ask you, you know, wh what are you hearing from them? I mean, what is the confusion? Do they feel like do they feel like one is the better one is better than the other, or did they read something and you know on a blog that that gave them some sort of idea that yes. almond is is what they should be drinking? Yeah, I think that there are for every you know one of us up here who are an expert in what we do, there are, I don't know, a million bloggers who have something different to say. And maybe I'm over or undershooting that number, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's not accurate. They're influencers. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think, Frank, you sort of brought up a point of we're not like using Twitter as well as we should be. And, and same thing, you know, Doug, that you're saying we're not telling our story scientists are sort of falling, you know, we, we do that, right? We don't share the information as well as we could. So yes, I think that there's a lot of really bad misinformation that gets replicated. And then like each blog takes the headline of the one they read before. Sure. So not even reading the whole blog and then turning it into a new story. So and, and do consumers ask you about sort of the environmental concerns that they have or the animal welfare concerns? Do you hear that as well as part of what you do? I feel like dietitians and nutritionists are getting more of those questions and they don't always know how to answer them. I do get those questions from time to time and I direct them to the proper resources because I am not the proper resource to answer sure, that. It's not sure. my expertise, you know, so I, I'm very comfortable saying I just don't know. 
That's great. That's great. Uh, Julia, I want to turn to you because the clientele you're working with, they're trying to get their products out and into the marketplace and sort of, you know, there are all these sort of differing opinions about the role that plant-based milks and other foods can play. And so I'm wondering, one, do you, do you think consumers are confused or do you think that they're, they have this opportunity for more choices than they, than they had, you know, 10, 15 years ago and they, they want to try new things? Or do you think there's a general, you know, a genuine confusion over, I don't know what's good for me. I think that Rachel's point that there's so much information available. And we were talking earlier about how if, if the goal and part of what we do is educate to the best of our ability to help people discern, because there is so much information. So to answer your question, I think the key, the key word is choices, Mm -hmm. that they have choices. And that's what PBFA exists to support. And so I think it's a matter of opinion. If, if, If consumers are truly concerned, I think that we can give people credit to know that they know what they're buying and generally know why they're buying it. Mm -hmm. And so the, I love what everybody's saying here, just in terms of there's a sense of collaboration and that we can work together and, and it's all driven by what consumers want want to consume and, and helping guide that, um, guide that process for them. So, and so the rise in, in plant-based foods you think is responding to that, that demand. And you you shared some really dramatic numbers with me when we spoke. Can you talk more about why it's growing and how, and and sort of what the landscape looks like? Sure. So plant-based foods as a whole in grocery retail is a, is 4.5 billion. That's grown 31% since 2017. And that's across, so the majority of that is plant-based milk and that continues to grow. And the remaining is plant-based meat and alternative dairy, yogurt, creamers, butter. So it's it's, um, products across the store. And uh, so, yeah, I think that we have some demographic information. You know, the, the, there's a lot of research that's available and we try to do our best to, to vet it just like any consumer should, you know, make sure that in, any information that we're sharing is just to serve as information. And there's a, 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 a wide variety of, of shoppers that have been identified as flexitarian that want to reduce their consumption of meat and dairy for whatever reason. And so we, our goal is to partner with retailers to help them best serve their shoppers, mm-hmm. period. We're not necessarily telling them what to do or not to do. We're not looking for any sort of argument or uh, nothing like that. It's just to provide a service to retailers. And how are retailers respond? They're coming to you because yeah. they need this information. Yes, exactly. Exactly. They're as confused as, you know, uh, having said that, $4.5 billion is large, but as a whole, it's still a very small percentage of total grocery store sales. So total grocery store sales are relatively flat. Um, if you're looking at dollars, they're up 2%. Uh, so the, the, the point is it's, you could say it's at a tipping point, you know, it's, it's, it's growing significantly. Um, but in general, um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely growing faster than the total store. For right. Sure. And you shared with me that you had recently met with uh, one of the managers for the, the meat counter mm-hmm. and he wanted to know how to better reach consumers. Can you just right. share that story? Yeah. So the Plant-Based Foods Association held an expo in New York um, over the summer and a meat department manager of um, um, oh, public is fine, Hannaford um, in Maine attended to educate himself, which I give him a lot of credit because they're, again, they're there to serve shoppers. So he, um, 
attended, saw me speak on a panel, reached out to me, asked me to come to his retail headquarters and, and talk to their headquarters staff to help them understand how should I merchandise these products? Mm-hmm. Should, what type of signage? What kind of verbiage? What, how, how can I better serve my shopper? It all went back to the shopper. They didn't want to, you know, just like we all, you know, feel that, um, you know, they don't want their total store sales to decline. <laughs> Nobody does. I mean, I'm strictly, tri- um, strictly speaking from a, a business standpoint. Um, we're not, we don't want to be um, causing alarm and saying, you know, plant-based milk is up and, and dairy milk is down. That's not, not a good message. Nobody wants to hear that. We're just here to help them navigate the landscape. Sure. And how can they best merchandise to serve their shoppers? Sure. Yeah. Sure. So Stephen, I, I want to turn to you. You're actually making the products uh, like cashew milk and, and other products that um, retailers are trying to figure out how to place in their stores. And, and Marcus and Doug talked about how um, dairy farmers need to build a better narrative around their foods. Do you think plant-based food manufacturers also need to build a better um, storytelling component to, to the work that they're doing? Um, I'm not really sure. I, I, I don't even look at it that way. I, I'm pretty straightforward that what I'm after is an organic plant-based creamery. And it's not like in my house, I don't have clover organic milk. I do. I just uh, um, am philosophically building a business around choice. And uh, if you're going to have non-dairy, I'm going to make it as as, uh, good as I possibly can, organic, and spend the time to build a facility and a a production know-how that creates a superior product that... uh, uh, when someone tastes it blindly versus a, a dairy product, uh-huh. except for milk, but a yogurt, cream cheese, sour cream, they would be surprised uh, and some would find it difficult to, uh, to uh, distinguish. But just on a, on a bigger basis, I think we're, we're at a, a place in the, in the world, and today was kind of an interesting day the last couple of days. From 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 Greta's why st- <laughs> you know, from, from, from from Greta's statement, which yeah. I think is pretty interesting. A sixteen-year-old person has had probably more influence in a matter of uh, of hours than any sixteen-year-olds ever had. In, in sure. a, in a uh, we're we're at, we're at a really interesting point. We got to ask, you know, is man really beast among all other species? Are we going to live on this planet in a way that is worthwhile for the next generation? And uh, I'm certainly not an expert. Let's just be clear. There are a lot of experts here. I'm not an expert. I'm just a guy building a business with a group trying to 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 to, to make a point. And maybe my point's wrong. I don't know. I, I don't think it is. Uh, I think that if you look forward and think about the population growth, can it all be coming from from animal-based products? Uh, I, I don't think that it can. And I think there's plenty of research that says it can't. But I'm not an expert. I'm about choice and I'm about trying to create a high quality product. The one thing I won't ever compromise on is is organic. That to me is meaningful mm. and um, it's amazing as you travel around the world. Uh, it's funny how often poorer cultures value food more than richer cultures. Sure. And that's insane. I mean, you, 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 it just is wrong. You, you go to Peru and you look at the way they eat or you go to Colombia or, or uh, Argentina or uh, Vietnam or where we get our, our cashews in Cambodia. And it, obviously the, the GDP is a lot less than here, but the way they love food is completely mm-hmm. different than, than Jack in the Box yeah. and the newest KFC with two donuts and fried chicken in between. And that's mankind or U.S. mankind food thought being expressed. 
I have a different view. Might not be right, but you know, I'm I'm cool with where I am. <laughs> well, you, uh, when we spoke, you you said that you know um, having um, a diet rich in in animal based products is fine when you have a billion people on Earth or a couple billion, but it's it's not good when there are ten billion. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? And I know I don't want to. We'll, we'll get to back I'm to the scientists. Scientist. I know we'll get I'm, back I'm, to them. I am not a scientist. I I can read. I'm very dyslexic, sure. but I can read. <laughs> And I've, you know, uh, I've, uh, there's a lot of disinformation as we've all talked about. I've read uh, enough uh, from credible sources to simply suggest that uh, an animal-based food system is not going to be able to sustain the, the population. That said, I, I'm personally a flexitarian, so I do like dairy. Mm -hmm. I think it's incredibly difficult to, uh, to uh, find something better than a lamb chopper cheese from from. Uh, Cowgirl Creamery, and and uh, there's many many great uses for, for but I just don't think it's the uh, basis for going forward. I think there has to be other complementary pieces, and that's what we're trying to do. And as far as just one other comment on nutrition, hey, I'm totally cool with the fact that cashew milk has not got the same nutritional profile is regular milk. It doesn't. It doesn't have, it has three grams versus eight grams of protein. It, we don't dump calcium in because I don't believe in dumping mm -hmm. packets of calcium in. It is what it is. It's organic. It's it's not irrigated. Yes, it's from Vietnam and, and Cambodia, but it's, uh, I'm, I'm fine with it. That's great. But before we turn back to the scientists, I, I want to you, you mentioned something really interesting to me. You're a flexitarian, and I think what we need more in, in sort of conversations like this is a sort of flexitarian viewpoint, that it's not a zero-sum game, as, as Marcus mentioned, you know, plant-based versus dairy or, or meat or, or whatever. So I guess for all of you, how do, we, how do we open up the conversation in a way that isn't combative? Because I feel like it's a very us versus them right now. So maybe, maybe Marcus, I turn to you. Well, can I just say, yeah. I, I don't look at it that way. I think, I mean, I grew up with Clover, Stornetta. It was right next to where, sure. I mean, I, I don't look, at, I, I look at, at good farming practices, whether it's meat-based or plant-based is what it's all about. And I have total respect for uh, uh, dairy farmers who, who farm Absolutely. the right way and, and respect animal husbandry and go the, the right path. That's great. I'm totally cool. And I love the fact that Northern California leads the world in shit. That's great. <laughs> We do love talking about cow Drop poop. the microphone. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I think the consumer, it's not you versus Marcus per se. It's sort of the consumers are part of this and they don't know. They, they look at it as sort of, an, you know, one side versus the other. So I, I'm wondering how we get beyond that. If we want people to make really good choices and feel good about them, how do we sort of make sure that everyone knows that there's room at the table for all of these different things? Yeah, that's 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 a hard question. Um, I think first and foremost, having a foundation of common, accurate information, whether it's on the nutrition side, the environmental side, the the farm family side, or the grower side, wherever those inputs come from. I mean, I think it, it has to start with there. Whether it's choices in our food system, our politics, let's, nobody knows what the hell is true anymore, right? By and large, nobody does. We're all struggling with it, and it's really frustrating. Who has time to really read the necessary literature to come to some fact-based kind of conclusion on anything anymore? Yeah. And so, 
sorry, I guess I'm venting frustration no, more great. than a solution, yeah. but um, but but that's why I think we we have to tell our stories as we all are attempting to do in an honest way. And it's you know you're not proud of everything that you do. You can't you know check every box, but you have to draw a holistic kind of complete mm -hmm. and accurate story what you do, how you do it, what the impact is as best you know it, and push that out and, and ask those provocative questions to consumers like, hey, did you, are you aware of this? Mm -hmm. Have you checked this? And where it gets controversial is, you know, not all, you know, plant-based companies are created equally, not all dairies are created equally, so you're caught in the, you know, unenviable position in some cases to defend your industry writ large, and that's right. really hard to do in the dairy Absolutely. industry because, um, well... <laughs> What Doug does, frankly, is vastly different than what you would see in some cases in a 15,000 cow confined animal feeding operation. It just is. It is what it is. And so as, as a dairy company, we try to only talk about how we do it. And if we earn the trust of that 90% of that 10% of the population where that resonates, then we've done our job. Um, but I think the, the scary thing from my perspective is that you've all heard the saying cheap food comes at an incredible cost. Um, it's not always easy to identify and articulate what those costs are, but they are there. They're real. And in our, our dairy industry, forever, the mantra is, how can you produce the biggest processing facility, buy from the biggest dairies to produce the cheapest white gallon of milk? And that does come at a tremendous mm -hmm. cost. And I'll be the first to say our industry has a lot of work to do to the extent that the Clover model can in some small way lead that way then I feel like that is our obligation. Mm -hmm. um, but but by by no means is our industry there yet. Sure. So, Frank, just, of I, course. Just please, as Doug. a farmer. So, kind of what everybody said, the thing that getting back to, you know, how do we, where do we go from here? And it is, it's, it's telling the right story, but telling the truth. So, soy milk, soy noodles, this and that. I'm using on my dairy organic byproducts from that. So without the dairies, without the cattle to eat, most of this byproducts from these soy products, canola meal, everything like that. Now we have another problem. Now we're having to dispose of that. Going back to the grazing, I am totally, our dairy is totally surrounded by mitigation ground for three endangered flowers and a California tiger salamander. I pay the state to graze that ground as a management tool, but I'm paying for it, not getting paid to do it. Plus my dairy is involved in it. So there's a lot of those things out there that we do as farmers that people don't hear about and they don't understand. And without both groups, we don't have anything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's the thing that I think is so has just drove me nuts is why we all can't just play on the same page, mm -hmm. tell the truth and let's all work together to, to move forward. Tell the because truth. With, yeah. Tell I, the truth I, because without the farmer, we aren't going to have as much plant-based ability to even process that, that and get rid of the, and without, you know, so those are the things that I think from the farmer standpoint that gets very frustrating as we move forward. Thanks for sharing and that. So the truth that Lynn, I want to talk about the truth and science well, with you. And I Frank, just want to add yeah. one thing. There's some 77 federally listed species that do better with some livestock grazing, uh -huh. according to a student of mine is sitting right there. And, um, <laughs> And for the most part, people who graze livestock pay for the privilege mm. of, of creating better habitat for these species. That is absolutely the truth. And that's something that no one knows. Like no. And they, buying whatever. oftentimes on their leases, they have to be doing grazing for those species. I wow. mean, deliberately prescribed for those species. And it's a big contribution so to biodiversity a, in California. That's a story we should be telling more and more. 
Um, so I, I want to get back to you and Frank, you know, about, uh, we, we've talked about, talked about, you know, some of this, you know, science used to be the truth, right? It was always the truth. And now science is an opinion. Um, and so Frank, you brought up an interesting story this morning about a, a reporter who had reached out to you and then shared some really non-scientific facts. And so both of you as scientists in this space who are constantly sort of talking about livestock and, and the environment, how do you create a more, um, a more truthful, <laughs> a truthful conversation around these things. Well, first of all, I want to say that I think that this discussion is awesome and it's so civil and it's respectful. Okay. And I, I love that. I think, I think uh, we really should. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't want to change that. I'm not going to arm wrestle. He's got bigger arms. And, and I wouldn't. And I wouldn't say that we are the number one in the shit business. I would say we are the number one in the number two business. Okay. <laughs> but coming. I'm using that one. <laughs> but but that, you know, that's why but, you're a professor and I'm not. But 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 this discussion is not always so civil. Okay. And that Absolutely. is what oftentimes drives me crazy. Uh, two days ago, I was interviewed by the New Yorker, and uh, this gentleman put in his article the notion that four pounds of beef equal the carbon footprint of a transatlantic flight. That's just ridiculous. And I hear some of the people um, providing alternatives to meat and dairy uh, greatly exaggerating the environmental impact. Uh, one of the more outspoken ones on the meat side says that by 2035, um, he wants to make the entire animal production um, redundant. And that's his main goal in life, uh, attacking animal agriculture and getting rid of it. And, uh, and that is not the way we should move forward. We should move forward by allowing each other to produce the best goods we know of, by supporting the agricultural sector, because quite frankly, that is the strategic number one sector in this country. They grow the food we all eat. Whether you eat something different compared Absolutely. to me, that's, that's your choice. But uh, to well, what you're saying is farmers need more of our support, and that's not what's happening. Well, the farming community in this country feels under attack. You can ask whoever you want, and I talk a lot to farmers. They feel like being under attack, and they are. And people don't understand how people farm. They have this romanticized idea in their heads mm -hmm. of the 1950 dairy and and so on. They have humanized animals on their on their forehead or in their forehead. Uh, of animals talking to each other and looking cute and so on. These are not our buddies. These are not our buddies. These are our food. And we in agriculture have to tell a different story. Uh, humanizing those animals has not done anybody in it um, uh, a service. You know, this I, I think has been a big, big problem uh, overall that we are romanticizing and mm. humanizing what we do in animal agriculture. Mm. And then people see the reality and say, well, that's not what we're doing. That's not what you are doing. I want you to do the other thing, the 1950 dairy and the 19... Well, I, I think, you know, whatever anyone in this room thinks about humanizing animals, what I'm more concerned about really is how do we get the climate facts out there? And I feel like you and your work and, and Lynn too have done such a good job at, at getting the facts out there, but they're not being heard. So how do we get scientists like your, you know, you both to, for the, your voices to be heard, especially right now, the urgency of these issues is so great. So there's no question that livestock has an environmental footprint and a carbon footprint. That's significant. Okay. There's no question about that. But, and that's what I study. That's what I do every day. Studying, benchmarking those impacts and mitigating them further. But there are other societal sectors, such as fossil fuel use, that are so much larger, like 80%, 80, 80, that, um, that 
are lost out of focus because there are some people who say, what you need to worry about is the burger you eat or the milk you drink, and then everything will be okay. And that is not true. There's no you know? silver bullet. No. I mean, and you will not change climate impacts of this country by replacing a McDonald's burger with a plant-based burger sure. or a, a dairy beverage with an almond beverage. L uh, Lynn, they all have their place, but... Please be serious and honest about that. Absolutely. Well, I, jump in? I think because the food thing plays into an existing narrative about should you kill animals or not, mm. and, and a, a movement that's been going on for a long time in this country, we really lose sight of the fact that fossil fuels are the problem. And so I'm backing up what he mm. says. We're taking oil that where carbon has been stored in the ground for zillions of years, for lack of a better technical term, and releasing it into the atmosphere. And we really need to be paying attention to that. Um, I think that's I, I think that's a terrible thing to ignore that in favor of eating this or that sure. is so much less. Go ahead. I was impact. just going to ask anyone on the panel or anyone in this room, you know, a lot of us have been around a lot of these conversations around, you know, how do you create a sustainable food system? How do you address, you know, natural resources with respect to the inputs that that has on climate change? How do you manage the finite resources on earth period? And, and you go through these conversations, this, this one is one of the more robust ones, but out of all of those that I've either sat in or, or listened to or, or spoken at, nobody raises a question, nobody has a conversation, can the globe sustain 8 billion people or 9 billion people? We never have the population conversation. I mean, w we over time presumably can invent the best mousetraps to mitigate all these things, but, but the underlying cause I mean, that nobody talks about on any of these panels is how many people can this globe sustain? The elephant in the room, yeah. If I may say something about that, I talk about that all the time. I call that the 2050 challenge. I just turned 50. When I was a little boy, we had 3 billion people in the world. Today, it's 7.6, and by the time I'm an old man, we'll have 9.5. In other words, human population on this planet will have tripled throughout our lifetimes. And that's a scary thought because the natural resources to feed these people will not have tripled. Now, where does the 2050 challenge play out, though? Not in the Americas and not in Europe. It will play out in Africa and South and Southeast Asia, where Southeast Asia will increase by 40%, Africa by 50%. That is where the 2050 challenge will play out. And we absolutely have to assist those regions in producing food more sustainably and more effectively, efficiently. Currently, that's not the case. There are enormous livestock herds, for example, in India, where they have three times more bovines than we do in the United States, producing a small fraction of the products we produce here. Uh, and it's much worse in most African countries. If we don't work with them, the 2050 challenge will bite us in the butt in a major way. But it will mainly play out in these two regions. Shani. So, um Actually, I think, Frank, earlier on, you mentioned the IPCC report that came out last month, and I have not read the whole thing. But I had the great privilege of having um, one of the authors of the report give a presentation to us last week. And um, if you haven't read it or haven't read the executive summary, I think it's a really interesting read. It is um, really talking 
especially about land use, land use change, land use management, and just dovetailing off of um, what Frank said just now, um, you know, as we're thinking about what well, we, we always talking um, at the Department of Food and Ag, that California is special because of what we grow, and we've already covered that, and how we grow it. And I think that's really important. And it's what we're talking about here. It's it's knowing how the food is grown, and, um, and the land that it is coming from as well. So um, as we look at whether, regardless of whether it's animal-based or plant-based, um, things that are going on in the Amazon rainforest, for example, through either grain production or cattle ranching are having, you know, the climate is not going to be able to sustain that land use change that's happening there. Same with palm oil production in the South Pacific. So there's a whole host of things that we really need to be looking at as we're thinking about our food system and how we're managing the land in concert with biodiversity, in concert with environmental benefits. We talk a lot about um, endangered species and grazing. Those things, as long as we are thinking about and as consumers, we're really striving to know more about how is it grown what are the what are the the co-benefits what are the cohabitats what are the things that the farmer or rancher are thinking about when they're producing that food um, that I think is much more telling to us um, and will help us get to really where we need to be on climate for sure. sure. But that IPCC report and land use change as a whole is a dramatic driver in our climate for sure. Absolutely. That's such a good point. But before we turn to questions, Rachel, I want to ask you, you know, Jenny just brought up such interesting points, like, you know, all of this information that consumers are trying to process about the social costs, the environmental costs, the economic costs of how their food is produced. I mean, that's a lot of onus to be put on somebody who's got 20 minutes at the grocery store right after work and then has to go home and make dinner. So how do we help consumers understand these issues better? And, and Julie, I hope you'll, you'll interject as well. I think something that we haven't spoken about today very much is um, a lot of food choice is based in what people like. So sometimes people will find a way to justify a certain narrative because they like a certain product or they prefer the taste or it's nostalgic. And so that's part of it. Mm. Um, how do we inform consumers? If somebody knows the answer, could you tell me? <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, you know, I have a small platform. It's really, really tiny. Um, I do my best, but the things I say aren't that sexy or appealing compared to what people out there are saying. So I think that conversations like this, where we all come together and we, at the end of this say, we want everyone to eat the foods that they want that are good for the planet, that are good for their health. All of us agree on that. And we come from different areas. I think, isn't that really powerful? Absolutely. It's really powerful. So I don't know. How do we get all this out there today? Someone have one really good tweet for us, <laughs> J- Julia or Stephen? Do you want to do you want to add anything before we turn to questions? No pressure. I just want to make sure that it's if you have anything else to say. That's great. You good? Okay. All right. Thank you all so much. Let's. I will. I will. I'm going to go uh, way out in a different uh, universe here for a second. Okay. And just give a, a mental model to think about when you think about these issues, which is if you go back to 1452, I think is the date, when the Gutenberg Press came out, and you look what happened in the next 150 years, religion, states, the whole structure of, of at least Western Europe changed. It was completely destroyed. Um, and people think the Internet, well, nothing's going to change. Well, 
the internet is e equally or more powerful than the Gutenberg press. And so every norm we've had, whether it's how food's produced, how it's consumed, how we learn about it, it's all changed. And we, we really aren't appreciating that yet. Mm. And so I believe we are in the middle of a significant uh, change, rebirth in the world uh, from the internet. And, and people aren't, I mean, we're right in the middle of it. It's somewhat like the toad in the waters is getting warmer here. We're not necessarily awake. And I think it's a, a mental model that's worthwhile thinking about. So how's that for left field? <laughs> Such an interesting point to end on. Thank you so much. I, I do want to turn to questions. There's a roving mic right in the back. So I know this is a really um, expert group. It's not just experts on stage. So we're interested in hearing from you right here in the front. Thank you. Um, I'm Kathy Columbus from Strauss Family Creamery. And we have the same opinion that there's room for both dairy and plant-based things. Um, we did focus groups recently. And by the way, not a question, just a statement. Um, we did focus groups recently and engaged on dairy versus plant-based milks. And one of the key lessons learned is that as some of the panel here said, is there's different need states. And so regardless of whether there's a young child in the house or somebody is, uh, you know, really exercising and they want dairy for that calcium or that protein, they also have plant-based for other things. The overriding factor, though, is, you know, once you get past organic, then there's maybe one or two things. So I think the issue of convenience and easy decision-making for consumers is somewhat overlooked because these are very complex topics. And going deep into these discussions, I think that's the, not the average consumer who's going to be able to or want to follow along. So I think to answer your question, in my opinion, mm -hmm. and this is kind of discussions that we're having because there's other things we as a brand want to talk Absolutely. about and want to educate people but is um, the, you know, the issue of distilling down to these key messages that are ubiquitous across consumer need states. And I think the farmer is one of these critical things yeah. that gets lost in all of this. And how do we make this personal, you know, to bring it home to the person who is in, you know, the North Bay or Sacramento or Texas or wherever that person is? Because I, you know, I like to say we live in a bubble in a bubble here in, you know, Northern California. Sure, and as sure. great as all of this is, sure. you know, it, it's not, I don't think, representative enough. No, it's not in the Midwest. Like, the, I mean, I'm from the Midwest. We, right. we have these discussions. <laughs> right. You know, exactly. So, you know, we we learned that you know Horizon is a is a huge competitor and they red organic I don't care you know I get in I see it I see it amongst other stuff yeah. you know and so I think another issue is partnering with some of these larger companies to that you know have a little bit bigger footprint um, on you know um, getting some of these messages sure. out uh, would be helpful now whether it's in their interest to do so I don't know but I, I so. Um, anyway, thank you for listening. My, thank that's you. That's my soapbox. Doug, do you <laughs> want to respond about the farmer sort of getting lost when we have these discussions that, that we don't highlight the, the, you know, one, the farmer and, and two, the landscape, the agricultural landscape enough? Well, I think, I think the toughest part about the farmer, though, is we all have to understand that I'm working seven days a week. <laughs> and, you know, and, and that's, the, that's the thing. I mean, I don't have, I mean, I've been very involved with our farm bureau and other other organizations and you know and just through a lot of the things that I do off the farm I probably spend anywhere from 25 to 30 hours a month outside of the farm mm -hmm. 
trying to tell my story, trying to work for the other agriculturist in our community. But if you don't have the person at home to run the farm, it's pretty tough. Absolutely. And, it, and it does. It gets very frustrating. I mean, the biggest thing that I've seen doing my tours and things like that is we have, we're so disconnected from the farm. So, I mean, for years when my kids were in grammar school, we'd have field trips and, you know, you'd have half the class. Oh, I get to go to grandma and grandpa's and I get to do this and I get to do that. Today's world, if I have one, mm. I mean, we do Sonoma County Ag Days. I take three calves there and it's 6,000 grammar school kids. And I have a Jersey calf there and a Holstein calf there. And you can't believe how many times people have said, is that a camel? Is that a deer? Wow. This is how far disconnected we are from our food source and from the farm. And it's scary because the teachers don't even know it. Gosh. So those are, the, I think, the thing that is really tough for me as a farmer. But to to get involved in, a, you know, doing a lot of this stuff, it's so hard because I still have to go home and go absolutely, to work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate well, hey, this, to me, <laughs> no, I, I feel bad now. I feel bad. No, but it's, but, but I mean, there's, and I think, you know, the, there's so many of us in the farming community that don't want to be out there in the public. Sure. That's not just like you said, the Midwest, you're not having these, this conversation because no. they're going to go to work, they're going to grow their crops and it's going to, they're doing know, their jobs. Yeah. yeah. And they, you know, it's and hard it, to be a or communicator. Or be out there in the public. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that's, and that's true. I mean, yeah. there are some, you know, that, that aren't the, the public person that you want in the public guy either. Well, it, it's this, um, obliviousness that people have to the multiple roles that farmers play. You're stewards of the land, you're food producers, you're, you know, uh, Making econ making economies thrive, being parents. I mean, people don't understand that you're 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 doing all of these different roles, and I, I think that's part of the misperception that people have and, about. And this. everybody everybody forgets that the economic value, the business of the it, the business yeah. of it. I mean, I still have to make money, absolutely, and that is a huge driver in today's dairy, and it's not because of you know where we ship our milk; it's just the whole system itself. I mean, in organic, we've lost 30% of our milk price from the high in 2016. That's $500,000 a year to me as a dairyman. So what other business could lose $500,000 a year in two years and stay in business with all the other regulations, with all the talk that we're talking about right here, and still continue to do what we're doing? Save open space, graze land for endangered species. I mean, it, it's just the multiple. I could, you know, I mean... It, it, it's amazing what we do as farmers that nobody knows and nobody takes into consideration that we still have to make money to run our lives. Absolutely. I mean, Stephen, I, I'm hoping you can jump in here because it's it's not just dairy men or dairy women who are farmers. It's the people who grow the the products that you're making milk out of. So the cashew farmers and, and, and others. Can you talk about the role that they're playing? Well, uh no. No? <laughs> I, I, I want a, a little bit different perspective. Look, I, I think the, the bottom line in the United States is food's too cheap. And, and if you really go back to it, this is, this is a, a philosophical discussion that the, every American needs to have is, is, is yeah, I'm sorry to call out names, but is Walmart good for America? Mm. Just drive it down, 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 drive it down. I don't think that's... That's not the course of uh, greatness and for mankind. And food, you know, you, you go to so many other countries, and food's more expensive, and it's it's cele it's celebrated in a far higher Absolutely. way. The idea that what is it now? I forget the statistic. Seventy-eight percent of Americans eat breakfast on the road. 
Um, uh, what percentage of Americans now even eat dinner as a family around a table? This, this is all this is all a mess. And it, we got to get back to loving food and honoring yeah. where it comes from. And yeah, I, I think we probably should know the difference between a cow and a camel. We got a problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. Other questions from the audience? Hello, um, I'm Jillian. I am a vegan and I'm also a food stylist. Um, I do want to say that I am not a confused consumer. Um, <clears throat> I do believe that it's not my mom. It's not my milk. It, you know, it's meant for baby cows. That's fine. But I also, in my line of work, have a lot of respect for food and a lot of respect for uh, foods that are culturally very rooted in dairy and, uh, you know, there's a lot of amazing, beautiful foods that come from dairy. Um, and they're really important to preserve, uh, culturally. Um, but I think the bigger question I have is as a California bubble, I love living here. I've been here for eight years. Um, I think as a California bubble, I think we have a responsibility to, um, teach, the world and children, um, what's going on. Uh, there's a lot of deforestation in Brazil right now. And how are we going to kind of like bring them into the fold, um, and teaching them on, you know, more sustainable ways to deal with waste, deal with water and, you know, not flatlining our, uh, oxygen, basically, you know, getting rid of all of our trees and everything. So I just, I'm curious of like, how are we going to spread this information? It's really interesting information. It's really fascinating that all of you are scientists and all of your research and you're coming together doing this. But I think that in order for us to educate people, we need to get this information out there. It's super important what you guys are doing. Um, and I'm just wondering, how are we going to do that? Like, I mean, YouTube is really amazing. Uh, Twitter is really amazing. I hope we're live streaming this on Facebook, maybe. See live stream. Yeah. Okay, great. So, Hello, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> I, I think, you know, we need to really be like bringing this information to people. So I'm just wondering how that's being done or what the plan is. That's it's a great question. I don't know who wants to respond first. You could, Jenny. So just on on the, um, I think the question about how do we teach the world? I I think a lot of it is really um, our rainforests, our 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 lungs, for, and we are one globe, and we are one world. And it's more about um, what are how can we pay for those benefits that we're receiving from Brazil. Um, I think that is a really important thing. So, because we are all benefiting from our rainforest here in California. And so how, how are we paying for those services that they are providing? We in the Department of Food and Ag often talk about ecosystem services um, that farmers or ranchers are providing. There are ecosystem services that the rainforests are providing. And how are we embedding that? A year ago, a few weeks ago, we had the Global Climate Action Summit here in San Francisco. And a lot of my job was to, um, to work with the food companies on what kind of climate commitments that could they bring to the table. The ones that were more more attractive to me and the ones that I saw that stuck the most were the ones where they embedded into their pricing structure those ecosystem benefit services that the food system is providing. So true cost accounting in the food system, yeah. Go ahead, Frank. So about 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, I guess it was, um, I 
lived in Paraguay for about a year and I saw deforestation happening there and it was shocking to me. And I have studied that to some extent. And recently in particular with the Amazon fires, um, I studied it more and I wrote some blogs about it. Um, and I'm very concerned uh, about the loss of biodiversity and the loss of, of unrivaled vegetation and so on. Uh, very much so. But first of all, you said you're concerned about oxygen. I can tell you the oxygen will not be affected by that. Some people say we'll have 20% less oxygen if the Amazon burns. That is not true. The vast, if you were to burn all vegetation in the world, we would lose half of 1% of all oxygen. Okay, and uh, I can tell you more detail um, of, offline. But uh, so that's not the concern that we run out of oxygen. What is the concern is that we're putting a lot of carbon into the air through those fires. Uh, right, and that, and that is a real problem, and we need to address that. But I also want you to know this. While everybody is talking about above ground forest burning, people do not talk about below forest burning. 300 million years of forests and dinosaurs and so on that are fossilized, that are in the ground, are being extracted at an alarming rate. About half of all fossil fuels have been extracted and burned. All that carbon is in the air. And the people who are emitting it, they're not talking about it. They want us to talk about straws and light bulbs and burgers so that we don't talk about the vast extraction of fossil fuels. And that's below ground forest burning. So while we need to limit the buff forest, the buff ground forests that are burning, we must not allow them to use that as a, um, yeah, as a distraction from what's really going on with respect to carbon emissions at major scale. I want to speak to Jillian, your point about how do we educate our young people. And the answer to that question is policy. Um, I, I, implore everyone in this room. I don't know what everyone does and at what level you are, but um, we need policy in place to educate our young people. Um, I work in nutrition education. That's what I do. I do school-based nutrition education. And guess what? That's not mandated by the state that we have to educate young people about this. So if we want things like that, it, and I do nutrition, of course, we can talk about sustainable agriculture and farming practices. We need policy in place to require teachers to do that. And some teachers will do it because they want to, but it's a really small number. And I'm looking at my, my colleagues in the room who I think will agree with that sentiment. Please, we need policy. And I would just add, consistent labeling really helps, too. It took forever to get the USDA organic seal. And now you see this proliferation of you're this, you're this, you're this. You're bombarded with all these seals that you're left wondering, do they have credibility? Maybe other than the USDA organic seal. Great. Everyone, anyone else? No. I want to marry. Uh, I want to. I, want to <laughs> I don't want to marry you. I want to. Get I, want to uh, mirror, I want to mirror what I just heard. You. I think. I think that uh, education. <laughs> no, you are safe. Look, I am married. <laughs> um, I am shocked to see how little twenty-year-olds know about food these days. Okay. I teach a class with three hundred undergraduate students, and these are the smartest kids in the state. Sorry, I mean, besides the ones in Berkeley, of course. But, uh, but it is amazing to me how little they know about food. The fact that we don't have 
um, food and nutrition taught in, in our educational system is shocking to me because it's so important to everything we do in society. Um, we do have some taught. It's just not across the board. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I want to say one more thing that, that, uh, that is important to me. Those 300 students I teach at UC Davis, um, I, I ask them questions such as how many of you drink uh, plant-based milk alternatives? And many of them raise their hands. But you know what? They're not into this or that. They're into this and that. They have normal dairy from cows in their fridge, and they also have some almond juice in their fridge. And so what's wrong with that? I mean, we always have that impression that it's this or that. Sure. It's not this or that. Oftentimes, it's both of it. And that's the notion of having choices that I think is very important. Thanks, Frank. I'll just dovetail onto that. So um, again, fifth generation California farmer, my family grows walnuts. I went to, when I went off to college, um, I grew up in a farming town. Um, we're all growing walnuts or some sort of fruit or, or nut in the town. And, um, went off to college and, and, and my freshman year said that we grow walnuts and they said, do those grow in the ground? <laughs> and so, and it was just to me, it was the aha moment that I need to, do a better job yeah. educating too. It's not just, you know, oh, wow, you know, they don't know this, but it's, it's our role and our job too, talking about and more telling our story. Um, getting to the below ground, um, and I know this is separate, but it's very similar, but our soils and how we're managing our soils and how we're managing it to keep carbon in the soil is absolutely important and critical as we have this conversation. Um, so terrestrial soil, soil is our largest soil source of carbon in the world. So how we're keeping that soil into the ground, how we're managing those lands in a way that we're really regenerating the soil and farming for years and years and years to come is really important. So things like compost application, tillage practices, cover crop, those are really important, not just for the climate conversation, they're important for the biodiversity conversation, and they're really important here in California as we talk about um, droughts and floods often. They are our sponges, and so they're such a crucial part. So as we talk about what is, um, you know, the whole climate package, not forgetting what's below our feet is Absolutely important. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Go ahead, Lynn. And not forgetting, I think it takes us back to what Frank was saying about talking about at the beginning about 70% of our agriculture land would be damaged severely if we tried to plow it. Plowing is one of those things that really disturbs the soil. Um, and so I, I, I think in a world where we are having this huge population growth and where we really need to use the resources that we're we have, not using those resources would be a shame. I also wanted to say getting to things that are either or, it's always like meat or vegetables. I think we can eat both, right? <laughs> really? Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, you have a question? Hi. So this is from our Facebook live stream. Um, we wanted to incorporate some of the listeners awesome. um, that are behind the scenes. So we spoke a lot about truth, but, you know, we didn't talk a lot about water usage. And so I think some people are a little bit confused as to how dairy water use versus plant-based water use, you know, what that balance looks like. Um, so I don't know if there's a lot of people who could probably speak to that, but. Well, the water use issue is very complex. 
and um, both the dairy sector but also the nut sector uh, are consumers of large amounts of water. Um, and we have become way more efficient in water use over the last few decades. So whether you look at nuts that are now oftentimes drip irrigated, underground drip irrigated, uh, that has drastically reduced uh, water use uh, for almonds and, and other nuts. Uh, or whether you look at dairy, um, all these sectors have drastically improved. But the question always is, is wasting or is using water to grow food? Is that wasting water? Is that wasting water? Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, we will have to grow food to sustain. Uh, and I, in my opinion, we have to do so in the most efficient way possible to meet consumer demand while minimizing those environmental footprints, including, including water. And I also want to caution people to not be myopic on one topic or the other. Sometimes I hear people compare dairy carbon footprint versus almond carbon footprint to favor one or the other. So, for example, uh, almond juice is an order of magnitude lower in its carbon footprint, but it has a significantly higher water footprint. So, what is it? You know, what is it you are after? Do you want to reduce this or that? Uh, I think we we need to be uh, mindful that myopic discussions don't get us anywhere. Stephen, you wanted to jump in. Um, I, I just say that uh, to further that. In our case, we use cashews, our, our principal ingredient, and uh, we, we buy cashews that are not irrigated. They're naturally watered, um, uh, but they are in far, far away places. So we vacuum pack and put them in, 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 in containers and ship them across the country. So, yeah, we don't use water, but we do use uh, uh, fossil fuels to get the, the, the cashews here. And uh, if we want to get down on it and go further, we're in plastic. And most people, have, uh, I mean, there, there there's so many things we do wrong. And you go right back to it and go, we're a fossil fuel-based world. I mean, we got to wake up. And, and, and uh, you know, I talk in our company a lot about all the things we do wrong. But there should be a pretty comfortable conversation admitting that the way the the industrial agro I'll just go industrial uh, balance sheet and income statement works is it's all wrong. We didn't really talk about it, but uh, car companies get to dump their waste for free. Coke uh, Industries gets to dump its waste for free. I mean, look how much is stuck on society. McDonald's can make people uh, obese and uh, whatever the consequences of eating a McDonald's uh, a diet is, and we as a society pay for it. And, and so there, there's so much to be said about looking back at, at capitalism and democracy and understanding that if you have capitalism, you have democracy and you have no values, things don't go so well. We might be experiencing that now in the White House. Um, but it's, it's, it's true. If you, don't, if you don't get there and ask these questions, we're, we're just we're, we're kind of pathetic. Just really, I'm really. Gonna let, I'm going oh, interrupt. Doug needs so, to get in. To water. Some of the things that so many people in this state don't understand is, is how much the farmers reused, reclaim water. So Monterey Salinas, I mean, 90% of the crops that are grown down there are with recycled water from sewage plants. Sacramento has just now put in one of the, the biggest one in the state, Sonoma County, where I am. We've been using reclaimed water to irrigate our pasture since 1981. That's I use 80 million gallons a year to irrigate my pasture, thanks to all of you that flush your toilet every day. <laughs> and it's out of sight, out of mind. People don't understand what the farmer has been doing for this environment for all these years. 
there was a with the groundwater sustainability act that was passed there's there was a dwr um came out with numbers that sonoma county that dairies in sonoma county were using three foot of groundwater to irrigate pasture there's not one dairy in sonoma county using groundwater we are all using recycled mm -hmm. water and I went through and did the math, took many studies from UC Davis, what our cows are drinking, what we're using to wash the barns, what we're using, this and that. I'm using less than 0 0.04 acre inches on my farm over the 400 acres compared to they were trying to say we were using three feet. So the numbers out there are so skewed, but you still have to remember that we are the, we become the, the biggest recyclers out there. We're utilizing the dairies and animal agriculture. So without us, you know, we can't have the other either. I think that whole thing is there that we have, we all have to work together and play in the same place. All right. We have one final question, Samantha. Just wait for the microphone. Hi, uh, my name is Quick. Okay, uh, so I will skip my name, and I will just say uh, <laughs> I wanted uh, just to. We were talking a lot about uh, consumers and choices, and so uh, one question is, you know, which consumers? Because consumers are not necessarily a homogenous group. Um, for instance, the statement that milk is the cow's milk is the original superfood—that um, is a statement that could only be true for uh, white eaters. Uh, for instance, I mean, 95% of Asians, 60 to 80% of African Americans, 80 to 100% of American Indians, and 50 to 80% of Latino adults cannot digest milk, uh, cow's milk. They are uh, what is called lactose intolerant, but I mean, more truthfully, lactose normal. So I, mean, I think that's sort of an important consideration. Uh, you know, which consumers are we talking about? Because milk would only be the original superfood for calves and, and white Great. human consumers. Great. Rachel, do you want to jump in here? Um, sure. Um, so <laughs> you're a nutritionist. <laughs> I am. Um, I think saying that they cannot digest milk is kind of a maybe oversimplification. I'll just say that. Um, yes, a lot of the population as adults are lactose intolerant. Yes, they get gassy, bloated, diarrheal. Nobody likes that. I get it. Um, I myself am lactose intolerant. There are ways to still consume dairy-based foods if you're lactose intolerant. Um, yes, consumers are not a homogenous group. I don't I don't think anyone here would uh, make the statement like that, but I think that's why we're all here together to say, that's why I was saying, if you're allergic to milk, I'm not going to tell you you should go drink milk. That's a really bad you know, advice for any consumer. So I think it's important to note that when we make these statements, there are always caveats. And um, there are, uh, you brought up a really good point, I think, um, when you were saying it depends on the person. For an infant, um, a dairy-based milk is going to be a better food source than it is for an adult because they need so much more protein. So, yeah, we can't treat all consumers the same. And I don't think, I, I think everyone up here would agree we're not trying to. Yeah. Great. I think I'm owning your own choices. I think that's if we want to educate our youth, educate ourselves, we're told to own our own health care. We need to own our own choices. If we can teach people how to discern information and how to research themselves and own it, then I think that's that's the most important message. Great point to end on. I want to thank our panelists and all of you for your great questions. This has been a really rich discussion, and I look forward to hearing more from you all. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening today. A shout out to our producer, Stephen Ray Morris, who makes this podcast possible. And please subscribe and rate this podcast wherever you listen. It would really mean the world to me. You can check out Food Tank at foodtank.com. Email me at danielle at foodtank.com. And follow me on Twitter at Danny Nirenberg and on Insta at Food Tank. Thanks again. See you next time for Food Talk.
Thank you again for listening. Join us to see the podcast recorded live at the upcoming Food Talk event in a city near you by visiting foodtank.com slash events. Tickets are always free for Food Tank members, so join now and we'll see you there.